0: A taxi swerves out of control. It slams into a telephone pole, and it leaves a beautiful young woman just returning from her engagement party, irrevocably brain-damaged for the rest of her shortened life. A couple joyfully awaits the birth of their baby daughter, as excited as any of us have been upon the impending birth of any child within our families, only to discover at the 11th hour that the little girl has a terminal birth defect. A mom, a mother of three small children, goes into the hospital for what should be a very routine operation and tragically and unexpectedly dies right there on the table. A young man on vacation accepts the hospitality of strangers only to discover they mean no good, and they take his money, and they beat him to death. The tests come back, and it's cancer. A fire erupts and devastates a family's home. Five children suddenly discover that dad will not be home for dinner, ever again, because, performing a routine errand, he gets killed by bank robbers. A beloved grandfather puts a gun to his head and pulls the trigger. These scenarios, these stories, this litany I've just given you, are simply the tales that have touched the life of my family during the years that I've been alive. And I'm sure that were I to walk out now and put a microphone in front of you, you could tell similar kinds of stories from your own experience or that of the people that you most love. And these realities are being uh, repeated all across our world every single day, millions of times, giving rise to the inevitable question, why God? Why? If you are so loving and so powerful like this Bible says you are, then why do you let these bad things happen? Please explain yourself to us. In the words of the prophet Job, who as you probably know is the biblical poster child for somebody having a very bad day, in fact a very rough life, a man who loses progressively everything he loves, property, health, relatives, everything he loves. In his words, does it seem good to you to oppress God, to despise the work of your hands, and to favor the schemes of the wicked? Please explain yourself, God. Haven't you ever asked the question? Haven't you ever wondered why these tragedies are permitted we want to believe in an all-loving God. We want to trust in an all-powerful God. We want to, to, to put our confidence in all of the assurances that were given throughout the scriptures that he cares and notices and has his arms around us and yet we see these terrible things happening. And so our, our minds just reach for reasons We think if we could just explain the causes of suffering in some rational fashion, maybe that would help. The Bible, of course, gives us some assistance with this. It does suggest that there are at least a few explanations, as it were, for the reality of suffering in our world, the pain, the losses of life. But one thing the Bible teaches us, that God has created an ordered universe, a, a, a universe that is ruled by an awesome interlocking matrix of physical laws and forces. And it is the dynamic outworking of this physicality, these consistent laws of nature that brings so many of the blessings that we count on. But there are also these unavoidable consequences to this consistent physical world. For example, the law of gravity that allows us to walk out of our homes this morning with absolute assurance that we're not going to suddenly fly off the planet is the very same consistent law, which means that if a plane's engines cut out at 50,000 feet, The plane's coming down. The very same laws of combustion that some of us used to grill a steak last night, and it was a tasty steak at that, I hope, mean that under certain circumstances, under certain kinds of prevailing winds, that law of combustion can result that your house is grilled in a terrible forest fire. We cannot have the predominant blessings of living in a universe of stable physical laws without also suffering the occasional banes that happen on the other side of that that come with this kind of nature. Scripture also teaches us that the universe is ruled by certain moral laws which are every bit as consistent as the physical ones. And and the moral law is predicated on this extraordinary gift and capacity for choice that God endows human beings with. He elects not to make them automatons, uh, pre-programmed beings that are incapable of any true volitional love or act of goodwill, uh, but instead gives them a marvelous capacity to create uh, their own kind of world. And if we choose to use that power to support and to encourage and to defend and to help and sacrifice for one another, then many, many kinds of thriving occur and many kinds of suffering actually diminish. We have the power when we use our choice to actually shrink the, the footprint of pain by the way we respond to to the struggles that happen perhaps as a result of the physical laws On the other hand, if we choose to ignore the needs of others, to cheat or to batter the other person, then loneliness and violence and misery escalate in our world. And though we might like to blame God for these things, we look at the story of the abused and the starving children. We followed the events of that family in California, every one of us this week. And something in us may have wanted to cry out, God, why didn't you stop this? But much of the suffering of this world is actually the direct or indirect result of the gift we've been given. Of the capacity to choose, to be sovereign over the affairs of life. And and humanity's violation of God's clear moral imperative to love our neighbors as ourselves is what is to blame in so many of these circumstances. How much suffering How much heartache would disappear almost overnight if we really learned to love one another? To come alongside of one another and not give up on each other in times of pain and heartache. And would it be a better life, do you think, if God took away our capacity to choose? Alongside of the physical law and the moral law that that gives shape to this world that we live in, God has also given us a life that is profoundly affected by spiritual law. The Bible teaches that in some mystical way, at the very beginning of the creation, human beings having every opportunity, chose to turn their back on the one who would give them them, that opportunity. And rebelling against him, seeking a way of independence that they could not understand was not to be for their good in actuality, the creation as it had been made, the interface and web of interdependent relationships between God and his creatures got broken, got cracked. The whole or the holiness of life became broken, or as the Bible puts it, sinful. And because there is some deep connection between matter and energy, what happened on the spiritual level began to, in fact, the physical. Uh, reality of the world and disease and defects and death itself became part of the creation and until sin is fully and finally addressed until it's finally eradicated we're left with its scars and its stains upon both our physical and our moral life Now I know this seems a little bit like a philosophical lesson to you, but what I hope you'll take away the big idea here is, is what I'm trying to say is that the lousy events of life, the one that get to me as they get to you, don't in actuality in any way demonstrate conclusively a lack of love or a lack of power on the part of God. On the contrary, the Bible teaches that suffering is caused by the outworking of moral law, by the, pardon me, the outworking of physical law, and the the breaking of moral law, and the violation of spiritual law, and all of these laws are fundamentally gracious gifts of God. Removing any one of those laws would give us another kind of world and universe not likely anywhere near as good as this world that we have, this universe that we have inherited. Now, I will say to you that as reasonable as that may be, it's not particularly comforting, is it? You know, even as I'm up here talking about these things and laying out these principles, I'm aware there's something fundamentally insufficient about this kind of an explanation. There's some part of me that wants to think that even if the laws that govern the universe are the sanest and the kindest ones possible, I want to believe that a loving God has built into even the necessary downsides some kind of silver lining. I want to believe God has a silver lining playbook, as it were, for even the difficult parts of life. And and this desire to find that lining is what leads some of us to look for what I might call the benefits approach to suffering. We, We try to make better sense of the pain and the losses of life by trying to find some kind of positive effects that such suffering can have? Have you ever seen the silver lining in the pains you've endured or witnessed? Well, I I have found personally, for one thing, that suffering can sometimes serve as the holy hammer that shatters our self-centeredness. I think back to one memorable conversation I had with a wonderful a woman named Judy, uh, who uh, opened her heart to me a few weeks before cancer took her life. She said, you know, Dan, when I first got sick, all I could think of was, why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? And then one day it hit me. And I thought to myself, why not me? Why not me? Why should I be exempt? Given all the good I've experienced, why should I not be exempt from some of the pain that others suffer? I realize now I am not the center of the universe, she said. Oh, I'm an important part of it, I think still, but I'm not the middle of it. I'm not the reason for it. And that discovery has done two incredible things for me, she told me as we sat in her kitchen and talked that day two incredible things have happened. It made me start to seek after the one who is truly the center of all things. And secondly, it made me start looking at other people as every bit as important in the big picture as I am. And it took cancer to teach me that. I wish it didn't take that, that kind of a loss and pain. But I'm glad I've learned the lesson. When somebody comes to that sort of place in life, they also often find, secondly, that suffering can become the path to a greater intimacy with God and with others. That was definitely true for my friend Judy. If you think about it, it takes the shedding of blood, literally or figuratively, to become blood brothers or sisters with somebody else. Uh, There's nothing like those times of, of foxhole fear to move us beyond mere cordial acquaintance with other people and into a really deep, genuine kind of community with them. It's when the sickness comes to a a little one in our family, it's when the, the, the sudden death happens in the family, it's when the financial reversal comes that we discover that there's a community of others who have suffered and who care about those who are suffering and it drives us into an even deeper place of significance and meaning. It's when we're carrying our own crosses that we begin to relate in a little greater way to the one who carried his very large cross all the way to Calvary. Suffering, no doubt, is a barrier to intimacy with God and others for some people. But for others, it becomes a bridge into a closeness with God and with other people that frankly can be found by no other route. I will tell you this to be true in my own life. It was a cascade of tragedies in my life that drove me into the arms of God and is the reason why I'm standing here today. Let me suggest a third potential benefit as well. Suffering can also be the wake-up call that we need to take sin and evil more seriously. As C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And in times of ease, I know this to be true for me, in times of ease, I don't hear God's call to self-examination very easily. I just don't. I don't hear God's call to depend upon him. I don't hear God's call to to, to make changes in my life. I don't hear God's call to reach out and be an activist to help other people. When things are going great with me, I'm mainly just looking at myself and my world. I may feel thankful, but I'm not on the move towards something better. How about you? How has it worked for you? Having said this, I I will confess that it takes a very special kind of person to face the tragedies and pains of life and see things very positively. It's it's an unusual kind of person. It makes me think of the story of the the company that uh, offered a $5,000 reward for the uh, capture alive of every wolf that was creating problems in a particular region of the county and the ad turned two fellows by the name of Sam and Jed into uh, very hungry bounty hunters. They uh, searched night and day through the forests and the mountains hunting for their valuable prey and exhausted one night they fell fast asleep around the fireside with visions of new 4 by 4s dancing in their heads all the money they were going to make. Well, in the middle of the night, there's a noise, and, uh, and it turns out that uh, Sam wakes up. And he, he stirs, and he kind of sits up, and the fire embers have died down now, and he looks out around him, and all around he sees glowing eyes and a low growl beginning to pick up. And seeing this, he reaches over to his partner's sleeping bag and begins pounding and begging and stirring and shaking, and he says, wake up, Jed, wake up! We're rich! (laughs) Now, it takes somebody very spiritual or very stupid to look at things this positively in the face of such a dramatic kind of threat. Which is why, if you are trying to comfort somebody who is in the midst of terrible suffering, it is not the time to try and point out either the causes or the benefits of their pain. So I just want to stop here and say, for any of you who find yourself today in that place of pain, I hope you'll forgive me for prattling on so much about the causes and the benefits of suffering in the midst of what you're going through. God looks at people that respond to others in this kind of rationalistic way uh, as unsympathetic wolves and not caring friends. In fact in the famous story of Job, Job has a group of friends so-called friends who, who seeing his litany of sufferings respond by trying to to point out to him all of the ways that he might have failed and brought this upon himself. To which God responds, my wrath is kindled against you. He's talking to the friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right. What I've learned over many years of pastoral work is that in the midst of suffering, most people aren't really looking for an answer to the why of pain. That will come later. There will be an opportunity to talk about potential causes or benefits. But in the midst of the actual moment of agony, what we need is an answer to the question, how? How am I going to get through this? How am I going to go on? And the good news that I want to share with you before we go is that answering the question of how is precisely where the Bible puts the weight of its emphasis in treating the subject of suffering. At the start of Holy Week, Jesus crested the Mount of Olives and looked down the hillside and across the valley at the great city of Jerusalem. And with eyes that perceived more than architecture, more than urban planning, what Jesus saw was the pitiable ignorance of a world that would in a very short time crucify its actual creator. Jesus looked out and saw the confused thrashings of a race that was capable of all of the kind of insane and stupid and cruel and depraved things that seem to occupy these days every single news cycle of our world. He saw the giant agony of every grieving heart, every lost soul, every tormented mind, every failing body. And seeing all of this, the Bible says that Jesus did not spout a theology lesson, but the scriptures say that Jesus broke down and wept. He just cried. And in doing this, Jesus demonstrated that God is not some distant Teflon deity, insensible to the agonies of life. On the contrary, as Isaiah reminds us, he is acquainted with suffering and familiar with pain. And that, it seems to me, should help guide our first response to suffering, uh, the critical response we need to make. Suffering is not a particular point, it's a whole event, says philosopher Simone Weil. And our response to the particular catalyst of the experience of suffering is every bit as crucial as the actual catalyst itself. And so in the midst Of the misery, when you feel alone, the first thing I want to say to you is picture the tear-stained face of Jesus, would you? Just, Just picture even Jesus on the cross as he looks with compassion upon this world that has gone mad. And know that God suffers with you. Know that he suffers and feels with you. He feels the agony with you. He would take your place upon a cross. He would take the cup of suffering from you if it were possible to fulfill the good he has planned for you. He would take it away. Then let this be your second response to suffering. Dare to ask for another human being's companionship as you go through it. This is a hard thing for some of us to do. We have tried and learned so long to conceal our vulnerabilities, to bench press the weight of our challenges and burdens because we feel it's just the adult thing to do. But I've always been impressed by the fact that when the Son of God himself faced his own dark night of the soul, He chose not to do it alone. Did you pick that up in the story we read earlier from Mark's Gospel? How intent Jesus was in asking for the companionship of his disciples as he went through his night of suffering. He begged his disciples to keep watch and pray with him through the long night. And I have to ask if God himself could express such vulnerability Don't you think we have permission to do so? Can't we do this too? So who, who do you know who who you could be asking to watch and pray with you through whatever long dark night you may be struggling through right now? And, And who needs you perhaps to be that companion that faithful, steady, not falling asleep, I'm there for you, I'm with you in this kind of companion right now. You know, there's a a third thing about Christ's response to suffering that also strikes me. It's that part in the story when Jesus says, thank you, Father, for this opportunity to have my character stretched upon the cross. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that, that even though I'm, I'm going to suffer incredible agonies, I still got so many reasons for happiness. Do you remember that part in the story? You remember those words of Jesus? If you're nodding your head yes, I need to tell you, those words aren't in the story. That's not the response that Jesus made in any way, shape, or form. While the reality was, the larger picture was, that suffering does sometimes stretch our character for good, that that there are reasons for joy sometimes alongside of the pains, in the midst of the pain, that's not the time necessarily to name those things. In fact, Jesus, when facing suffering, sweated blood, some of the translations of the Bible say. He cried out to his father from the depths of his soul Abba, Father, everything is possible for you, Dad. Take this cup from me, please. If it's possible, please. Take this pain away. Do you know you've got the freedom to do likewise? Do you understand that you can tell the truth about what you're feeling? Cry out to God. Cry out to God. Be authentic. Express emotion. Raise your questions. Raise your fist. Every faith hero from Job to Jesus found the freedom to do that in the presence of God. And you almost get this sense, particularly if you read the Psalms, that God sort of values the authenticity of that kind of conversation. In fact, suffering becomes an occasion for the conversation that might not have come any other way. But I want you to notice also how Jesus finished this prayer to his heavenly Father. Jesus essentially said, if I can't take a pass on this cup of suffering, then grant somehow, Father, that in my drinking of it, thy will, which means thy purposes, your good purposes, shall be done. And this to me seems to be the fourth crucial part of a Christian response to personal pain. And the last part I'll touch on Today, even if offered through clenched teeth. And I believe some of the best prayers ever offered are the ones we do through clenched teeth, then then believe in the ultimate redemptive purposes of God. Believe in it. Reach out with trembling hand and cling to it. In, In sackcloth and ashes, Job sat on a dung pile, scraping the scabs off of his skin and yet nonetheless said, I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose, no good purpose of yours can be thwarted. Author Philip Yancey once described this perspective in these words, and I just love this. I hope you'll take this in. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Faith means trusting forward with what will only finally and fully really make complete sense to us when we're looking backward, when we're standing with Jesus, when we're further along the journey, and turn and say, aha, I see the good that was at work in these things. One day, it's all going to make sense. I hold to this hard uh, because I, I, I'm as rattled by suffering as, as you are, by the tragedies of life, by the wise. but I cling to the idea, the biblical promise that one day we shall see fully even as we are fully known. Helmut Thielecki, the great German pastor, puts it this way, Someday the mystery of suffering, the mystery of madhouses and of mass graves, the mystery of widows and orphans will be illuminated. Someday we shall learn all the answers. Someday the paralyzing contradiction between justice on the one hand and life's blind game of chance on the other will be reconciled. Someday, the tension between the rich and the poor, between the sunny side of life and the gloomy zones of horror out there will be equalized. And in the meantime, we must cling stubbornly, no matter how dark it gets, to the hope and to the light of this final fulfillment. Few people I ever knew did that as beautifully as my friend Bob Galehood. Few people clung so hard to that. You knew Bob, many of you. He was a pastor of this church. He battled cancer 10 years in a heroic way. And I remember Bob saying, I know I shall be healed. I know I shall be healed. And I'm praying it'll be here in this life. But if it doesn't happen here, I know I shall be healed beyond this life. And then quoting his favorite poet, George MacDonald, Bob would say, a great good is coming. I know that good is coming to me. That good, because of God's nature, is always coming to me. Though few have at all times the simplicity and the courage to believe it, writes MacDonald, what we call evil is the only and best shape which for the person and his or her condition at the time could be assumed by the best good. Jesus put it this way, trust in God, trust also in me, for God shall work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And if you know Jesus, then you know that God is very good. Please pray with me. God, we we take some comfort today in the reality that even when our trembling hand, our doubting and struggling hand is not strong enough to hold fast to you, that you never stop holding on to us. And so we pray that, that if anyone here today has forgotten the feel of the touch of your hand, that you'll give them a sense that you are with them right now. We pray, Lord, that you'll use each of us to be those hands, those voices, those presences of assurance to anybody who is suffering. Until that great coming day when death and pain and mourning shall be no more and all there is, is the light and the laughter of your love. Give us the strength to keep walking the highway until that day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.